Hello? Hi. Hi. All right. This damn phone system sucks, man. <laughs> you have to say, Sam, Sam, 26 times. If there's any uh, ambient noise, it just won't even take it. This is Sam Israel. I'm calling him at his current residence, a federal penitentiary. We're talking about the day he realized he was in trouble. Not the trouble that got him sentenced to prison in the first place. Much bigger trouble than that. All right, so anyway, so I'm in a bar, and I look up at the TV. And like I said, I, it's, I see his picture, and it looks familiar, and it turns out it is me. And I said, who is that asshole? Oh, that asshole's me. And I'm on America's Most Wanted. And not only am I on America's Most Wanted, there's an armed and dangerous shoot-to-kill order on me. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift. Stories about con artists and the lives they ruin. Now, there's one type of life that con artists ruin that I haven't really gotten into during this podcast. And that life is their own. Being a con artist can be amazingly profitable, not just financially, but emotionally. Con artists get a rush from what they do. But the grift does come to an end sometimes. All the con artists that I've written and spoken about have one thing in common. They got caught. That's a given, since otherwise we'd have no way of knowing about their exploits. Sam Israel's story involves deception and fraud, as these stories are wont to do, but it also involves hubris, not knowing when to stop conning and come clean. And it raises the bigger question of whether or not that kind of change is even possible. Sam now lives at the Federal Correctional Complex in Butner, North Carolina. So throughout the interview, you'll hear the other inmates in the background, and you'll hear the prison phone system interrupting our call because inmates are only allowed to talk in 15-minute intervals. Sam says that to understand how he ended up where he did, we need to go back, way back. I was raised in a good family, and they had a very large commodities business. That's an understatement. By the time Sam was a kid, when the family moved from New Orleans to New York, their commodities business was a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation. The Israels were, to put it mildly, fabulously wealthy. Sam's parents sent him to an elite prep school, gave him every opportunity, and it showed. As a teenager, Sam was smart, athletic, charming. He did have a tendency to lie, but they were white lies about girls and sports and teenage exploits. Harmless. Besides, Sam told those little lies simply because he wanted to be liked by others. And Sam was liked. His charm could only be seen as an asset, especially in the world of finance and especially in the family business, which Sam had been groomed for since birth. Growing up, we were rounded all our lives. My family involved us in the business from kids. I'd like to think trading was in my blood. Sam was taught to work hard, persevere, and to be competitive. But he didn't want to compete with his brothers and cousins, nor did he want to live out his professional life under the thumb of his father and grandfather. 
After Sam graduated from high school, his family expected him to attend Tulane, just like his dad and granddad before him. Then, naturally, he joined the family business. But Sam had a different plan. I got to an opportunity to work on Wall Street when I was very young. I was 19 years old, and I jumped at the opportunity. So instead of going to Tulane that August, Sam started his first job on Wall Street. And it didn't take me long to realize that the entire system was corrupt. It was from hedge funds to the largest brokers. Every, everyone cheated. Everyone, we called it creating an edge, but it was, it was still cheating. It was all wrong. Even though he saw corruption all around him, Sam chose to stay in the business. The world of Wall Street was just too enticing to give up. It was the go-go 80s. As I moved up from the business, I used to get incredible gifts. I was 24 years old. I was flying in a helicopter to work with my boss. And I was making a quarter million, 300 grand in my own trading account. Sam continued to work his way up. And eventually, in 1996, he felt he was ready. And that's when I started Bayou. It was my dream to always do so. Bayou Hedge Fund. It was a huge launch, $300 million of outside money to start. A big deal back in 1996. At the helm were Sam and his partner, James Marquez, a close friend. It was his last chance in the business because he had just failed in a hedge fund previously. And it was kind of high profile and he felt he couldn't go anywhere. But Sam believed in him. He'd been a trusted figure in George Soros's fund. And he'd hired Sam into his own fund, the one that eventually collapsed, back when it was the hottest new thing on Wall Street. Maybe Sam should have known better than to go into business with someone whose fund had just tanked. But he was still young, still intoxicated with the promise of wealth. And there's an element of luck in the business. That failure could have been anybody's. So Bayou was born. The first couple of years were fine. But then you lost some money, and I covered it up. And I thought, okay, well, I can make it back. So if I could get rid of him, I'd be okay. And it took longer to get rid of him, and the losses increased. But I still felt that once I got rid of him, I could raise money. Actually, the first couple of years weren't fine. Marquez was losing money from the beginning. In the fund's first year of operation, it reported a loss of 12%, a huge amount. 1997 was just as bad. It was getting difficult to raise any additional money, even with Sam's charm and convincing manner. And so a new scheme was hatched. Sam began using the money he got from new investors to pay back his earlier investors. And as you might know, there's a name for that. Ponzi scheme. I should have just called it quits and gone back to my old job, which was a great job in a hedge fund, but I didn't. And I chose to stick it out. So, long story short, it got too tough to maintain performance and try to cover the losses and through a comedy of errors, really, the hole gets bigger and bigger to the point where there's no return. So... This call is from a federal prison. Yeah, they, they got to let you know that because I forget where I am all the time. So, uh, anyway, it got to the point of no return. Point of no return, meaning Bayou Hedge Fund was $450 million in the hole. Sam Israel had orchestrated what was at the time the largest Ponzi scheme in history. 
It would only be surpassed when Bernie Madoff was caught several months later. By the way, Madoff happens to be incarcerated in the same federal prison as Sam. Anyway, in 2006, Sam filed for bankruptcy. And things kept unraveling from there until finally he had no choice but to turn himself in. So I went to the FBI, and it it was kind of a relief to me to actually go ahead and turn myself in because I'd been lying. It's not my nature to lie. Or so he says. In any case, Sam pleaded guilty to fraud and cooperated with the FBI in the Bayou investigation. His lawyers figured he'd be sentenced to seven or eight years in a minimum security prison. And I felt that was fair. But Sam was out of luck. They switched judges on me. So I go, I go to the, uh, the sentencing, and right away I know something's wrong. The judge is just eating me up and, and coming down on me. And I said, oh boy, this isn't good. This is just not good. So she gives me 240 months. And I got my mother and my family behind me, and everybody's gasping. I'm sitting there trying to figure out how much that is in dog years, because this can't be happening. Sam was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. He was 49 years old. By the time he got out, he'd be an old man. I I had envisioned going to a camp, which is a lot different now. All of a sudden, I get 20 years, and I'm envisioning Oz. And I'm this white guy, white Jewish boy, you know, white collar criminal now going to go in and you know what's going to happen. I'm going to be dead. And I'm thinking, you know what, this is, I have a death sentence. What am I going to do? So at the end of the sentencing, I walk up to the railing in front of the judge and an FBI guy, I had a bunch of the guys I knew in the FBI and had gotten to know over the course of, you know, going through all the Bayou stuff. An FBI guy said, Sam, I got two words for you, Costa Rica. Whether an FBI agent actually gave him that advice, we'll never know. But Sam ended up doing something even more crazy and definitely not advisable in his situation. We'll find out what after the break. Now back to our story about Sam Israel, who's facing 20 years in prison for financial fraud. It's March 2008. Sam has three months of freedom before he has to report to prison to begin serving his sentence. So in the course of that three months, I had watched the Robin Williams movie was the one where he got his family, went in the RV, and, and went all over the country. RV, that's the film. It came out in 2006. What is that? It's an RV. And why is it in front of our house? We're taking it on vacation. And I said, you know what, maybe, maybe I can do that. Maybe, maybe I should do that. That, as in not serve his prison sentence, but just take off forever. Maybe it should have set off some alarm bells that the inspiration for his grand escape plan was a family comedy. But Sam was desperate. I should also note here that he was already a master of financial fraud. He was masterful at spinning fantasies for prospective investors about the beautiful financial prospects that investing with him would surely bring. This is the part of the story where Sam starts to use his own drugs. He starts to believe and then carry out a scenario straight out of some fantastical screenplay. 
and I figured, okay, I have to get some money up, and I started trading like crazy. I got a friend of mine who had a tax loss carried forward, and I talked him basically into letting me trade his account and giving me half the proceeds in cash so he wouldn't have to pay taxes because he had a tax loss carried forward, and he would be gaining. So I did that. I traded really, really hard for about six weeks. I made quite a bit of money, and I went out then, and I bought an RV. Sam planned on driving the RV around the country, staying on the move, lying low for a while. Then he'd go someplace warm, someplace where an American could easily hide his money, someplace without an extradition agreement. And I thought, well, I have to take my death. So I grew up in New Orleans, and anyone who jumped off the Mississippi River Bridge was never found because the Mississippi is down uh, toward New Orleans, the mighty Mississippi. So I said, you know what? I'm going to jump off a bridge. But what can I do? What bridge can I jump off of and actually not die? Sam checks out all the bridges in the New York area, looking for one that would suit. He needs a bridge that would be high enough that it would look like it killed him when he jumped off. And he needs to make sure that nobody would witness him surviving the fall. He finally settles on the Bear Mountain Bridge, which connects the Rockland and Westchester counties in New York State. It's a 155-foot drop into the Hudson River. It was scary. It was a very long jump down. But they had a net underneath because they were doing construction. And they have these nets so blocks of concrete and stuff fall on boats and, and, you know, things below. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to take my chances on that. Here's where we are. It's June 8th, the day Sam was supposed to begin his sentence. The last thing he does before setting out for the Bear Mountain Bridge is say goodbye to his 11-year-old son. I went and talked to my son, and, you know, I, I just said to him, basically, you know, Daddy, I'll be in contact with you. Sam thought it would be too cruel to let his son think he died. Sam also told his girlfriend and his mother about the plan. Now he was ready. He arranged for a driver to help him with the logistics. So I go, I park my RV, I get a ride back to my house, I pick up my SUV and drive to the bridge. I go up on the bridge and there was a moment on the bridge where, you know, I definitely could have died because... I could have missed the net. As Sam stood there on the edge of the bridge, he was eminently aware that he might not land the jump. If he missed the net, he'd probably die. And even if he did land in the net, he could get seriously hurt. But I said, you know what, I was to the point where I really didn't even care at that point, so it was going to be one way or another. So I you know, said, God, this is in your hands now, not mine. I jump off, I get into the net, so I'm thinking I'm just going to scramble up, no problem. But I don't know if you've ever been in the circus and you see the trapeze artists in the net. This thing goes way down, and I'm in good shape, but I'm trying to scramble up this thing, and it's like impossible. It's, uh, I'm trying to keep my balance. I'm doing it on my knees and pulling with my hands, and it's going slightly uphill. And I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Halfway up, I wished I hadn't hit the net. I thought I was going to be dead anyway. So I get to the end, finally, of just where the shore is, not up to the top, because I couldn't make it up to the top. And I jump down, busted up my knees and my legs, scramble up, and there's a guy waiting for me who drives me to my RV. 
dicey there for a minute. But in the end, part one is a success. Sam has jumped, he's made it to shore, and there's his driver, ready to take him to the RV to make his escape. Ridiculous fantasy or not, it seems like everything is off to a relatively smooth start. So now I'm kind of free, but I hear I'm driving with him. All of a sudden, I hear all these cop cars coming and everything, and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm screwed already. And I'm, I'm jumping down between the seats, but we made it out to the RV. I get going, and I find a place, and I kind of hold up for a while. And I didn't touch, go near the Internet or anything, and I was going to go on my way and just see the USA for a while and eventually get down into South America, Central America, like he said, Costa Rica. So now Sam is on the run. He's out on the open road in his RV. He thinks he's in the clear. So far, everything has gone according to plan. But what he doesn't know is that the FBI is already on to him. So where did he go wrong? It just was not believable at all that he would have done it. That's Elizabeth Greenwood, who wrote a book on what's called pseudocide, faking your own death. While writing it, Elizabeth studied Sam's case. And the thought that, you know, the FBI and police would show up and look at his car and say, oh, he must have jumped. All right, guys, let's pack it up and go home. It just wasn't believable. Turns out faking your own death is incredibly hard. And Sam wasn't nearly good enough at this particular con. First, there was a hackneyed line he wrote on the hood of his car. Suicide is painless, which should have been a dead giveaway from the beginning. If you're leaving a suicide note for your loved ones, is that really the only thing you say? And the place you choose to say it, where a stray breeze can whisk it off in a second? But even more simply, Sam had a clear motive to fake his own death. This isn't the kind of profile of someone who does really, you know, commit suicide this way. He was in so much trouble and they really thought that he was still, uh, you know, on the lam. I think he threw the plan together in about a month. By the time Sam jumped off the bridge, he was so desperate to escape his prison sentence that he actually was willing to die. He was so upset, he could easily get sloppy and make mistakes, which he did. Perhaps The biggest mistake? Telling his family his plan. Now his son, his girlfriend, and his mother, all of them would have to lie convincingly to the police and the FBI who would start questioning them soon after Sam's supposed suicide. And if his family actually managed to pull it off, well, it wouldn't have helped much because of the last reason Sam's suicide was unbelievable. But unfortunately um, for us, in water accidents, bodies usually do turn up eventually, usually within the first few days. And especially if you were in, you know, a real predicament such as Sam and you try to stage a water accident where no body materializes, it looks very suspicious to law enforcement. By the end of the week, the police could be reasonably sure that Sam was alive and on the run. Sam made so many mistakes before he even jumped off the bridge. And after jumping off the bridge, you can't just get in an RV and hope it all works out. You need to get yourself out of the country, 
have a clear plan for how and where and when you're going. You need money, resources, foresight. Instead, Sam just wanders. He spends his nights parked at campsites. He doesn't really resemble a fugitive on the run so much as a guy living out his dream of the American road trip, even if the trip is a rather stressful one. But sooner or later, all roads must end. Maybe a month into this thing, I'm in a bar, and I look up and they have a TV in the corner. And I look up, and there's a guy who looks like me on TV. And I'm like, who the hell is that? And it turns out it's this show, America's Most Wanted. And, oh, jeez. You know what, Maria? I'm going to have to call you back in 15 and continue if that's okay. Yep, absolutely. Okay. I'll so we'll talk, we'll talk exactly. to you in 15 okay. minutes. Thank Perfect. you. Bye. Bye. It's hard telling a story from a prison phone. In any case, this was the moment Sam knew he was in trouble. Knew it for sure. Maybe for the first time in his life, which sounds a bit strange to say. I'm a white-collar criminal. I've never been associated with violence, but they thought I had weapons. And I know I am royally screwed. I'm, I'm screwed. Sam finds an internet cafe, and for the first time in weeks, he reads the news about himself. The stories say that not only do authorities know that Sam faked his suicide, they've arrested his girlfriend for being an accomplice. To make matters even worse, they say they intend to arrest Sam's mother, too. I don't really know much about the law at that time. I didn't know this was kind of a trick to to get me to come in, and it worked, because I couldn't allow that, you know? I, I couldn't allow that. I had already caused enough damage, enough hurt to everyone, so I said, the heck with that, and I went and turned myself in. Sam was so upset at the prospect of his mother's arrest that he couldn't think clearly. He didn't realize that the police actually didn't have any evidence against her. It was all just a show to draw him in. The authorities, they're not above a little con of their own sometimes. And it worked. But for Sam, the process of turning himself in was just as absurd as everything that led up to it. I rode my motorcycle to a police station, and it was closed. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I ride to another station, and I said, all right, I I went and I smoked a cigarette because I figured that's going to be the last cigarette for quite a while. And I'm in the parking lot. I go in, and I said, I'm here to turn myself in. And there's a guy that's behind this window. He said, what? I said, well, I'm here to turn myself in. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I think I'm, I'm wanted. He goes, what, do you want to use a bathroom? Here Sam is, trying to turn himself in, and it's turning into somewhat of a comedy of errors. It's like he really is in a movie, not one of the biggest manhunts of the year. And I said, no, I'm here to turn myself in. He goes, well, you can use a bathroom, but... All right, just hurry up. And I said, sir, no, no, I need to come in there. So I go in, and I said, look, my name is Sam Israel. I'm here to turn myself in. He goes, well, what do you have outstanding warrants? I said, well, I think it's a bit more serious. And I said, do me a favor. Please, just one favor, don't call the press. I don't want any press here. And the guy goes, yeah, right. 
So he looks, he looks me up in the thing, and he goes, holy shit, everybody's looking for you. So what happened to Sam Israel after he turned himself in? As you can imagine, things definitely didn't get better. He still had a prison sentence waiting for him. A prison sentence that was about to get a couple years longer because he faked his own death. Sam is now seven years into his sentence, and he's trying to get an appeal. He's 57 years old. His health is poor. Prison has not been good to Sam. And when he talks about his feelings about what he did, you can tell it's something he's had to struggle with. There's no excuse for what I did. I was wrong in what I did. And I take 100% responsibility for everything that I did. Uh, It was my business. It, 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 It would happen on my watch. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't regret it and think about it. I was not trying just to get out of paying my debt to society because I had done wrong and I deserve to be punished for what I did. Uh, But the question is, do I deserve a life sentence? And for me, 20 years is a life sentence. And retrospectively, when you go back and look at other people who have gotten sentenced and everything for much larger amounts, including the Enron people and everybody associated, they didn't get nearly as much time. And so why was I singled out? Why was I made the example of? Incidentally, the judge who sentenced him absolutely does not think she was making an example. In 2014, when Sam made and lost a bid for early release because of health problems, this is what she said. He was the mastermind behind a $450 million Ponzi scheme. I may have taken Mr. Israel's medical needs into account when I gave him as little as 240 months. I assuredly would never have given him less. So do I regret doing it? I don't know. I mean, part of me regrets turning myself in because I didn't know that they really couldn't arrest my mother and and Debbie. But I don't know if I wanted to live my life like that either, Uh, you know, on the run the whole time. So, I I mean, I regret everything. But I I just, my sentence is so draconian. Part of me always wonders what would have happened if I didn't turn myself in. Would I have been caught? Would I have gotten away with it? Sam's regret seems more centered around his decision to turn himself in and around how long his sentence was. But if he truly regretted what he did in the first place, would he have tried to compound the crime by yet another con to top off the first, faking his own death? It's tough to know. It's also tough to take him at his word, because here's what we do know. Sam is remarkably charismatic. And he's been persuading people for his entire life. He still wants to appeal his sentence. He still wants sympathy. And I readily admit, I find myself sympathetic. His charm is quite powerful. It makes it easy to want to believe him. It's part of what made him so good at what he did for so long. In the end, though, He didn't think twice about running not one, but two cons. About putting a lot of people out of money and throwing some under the bus. In a way, I think his charm fooled even him. It fooled him into thinking he could do no wrong, that all could somehow be forgiven, that everything would somehow work out for the best for him. 
For, after all, wasn't he a charming guy? Hubris is a dangerous friend. It can get you far, but it can, in the end, prove to be your Achilles heel. The Grift is produced by Adelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact-checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. 